So Jesus is coming off this big sermon. Get on track. Big sermon. And uh, he's been talking, and he's been making these claims, and they're astounding claims, and people don't believe it. People don't, even his brothers, we just read that, even his brothers don't believe it. They're not, they're not, they're not tracking with him. And they're telling Jesus, let's go back to Jerusalem. Now, remember, last time he was in Jerusalem, he healed a man by the pool of Siloam. He healed that man on the Sabbath, and the Jewish leaders went crazy because he healed someone on the Sabbath. And so then we are told they started to look for a way to kill him because they could see this guy, we cannot control him. For people in power, it's all about control. That's always what's going on. So they couldn't control him, and so they were looking for ways to kill him. So let me just give you the setting. Let's just kind of set, set the scene here because there's some things that we're told that we might not know right off at the top of our heads. First thing it says there is it says that after this, Jesus went to Galilee. Okay, so after this is just a Greek phrase for an indefinite amount of time. Could be years, could be months, could be days. However, we know there's a festival coming. We know the festival that was going on when he was teaching in John chapter 6. So we know actually it's been about six months. We have about six months that have passed by, and now there's a new festival, the festival of Sukkot. That's what we call the uh, Feast of the Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. Now, what is that festival? Because this is important for us to know as we set the scene, right? The, the, the time of the year is fall. It's probably around early to mid-October because it varies in how it falls, right? And it's a festival that celebrates two things. Number one, it celebrates that the harvest has been brought in. And so it is a festival that has a lot of eating, a lot of drinking, a lot of celebrating. So they would build these, they called them booths. And it's called the Festival of Tabernacles with an S. So it's not about the tabernacle. The word tabernacle simply means tent. And so it's the festival of tents. And they celebrate finishing the harvest. And the other part of the festival is they are remembering how their forefathers wandered in the desert for 40 years and lived in tents the whole time. They had no lands. They had no harvest. So we're celebrating the harvest. We're celebrating that now we have a place to live. Now we have a place where we can bring in the harvest. We are blessed by God. We're not living in tents anymore. We're not living hungry anymore. So we're celebrating that. And so what they did to celebrate it was they built these tents, these booths, they called them, oftentimes with uh, palm branches. Uh, one scholar noted that it was a time of uh, 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 this festival was involved discomfort in living in a lean-to, and it involved the merriment of celebration over the harvest. So it was kind of two sides to it. Right? So it would look something like this. This is a small representation of what it would look like. They would build a lean-to outside of their home, or they'd travel to Jerusalem and they'd build one, or they would use a tent or something for their whole family, and they would live in it for seven days. Right? This is Hebrew camping. That's what this is. And what they would do, it, it, in fact, if you, if you could see some of them, they would adorn the sides and the front with fruit, and they would have uh, uh, fresh meat, fresh, fresh lamb uh, that they would cook and eat. So it would be this celebration. There would be huge, oftentimes in the corners of these little lean-tos, huge jugs of wine, probably to help them sleep better at night in this tent. But this is basically... This is Hebrew camping. Now, 
We've kind of reversed that idea, right? For them, it's, it's let's be uncomfortable as a reminder of how we can have these comforts we have. Now, what do we do? We leave the comforts we have, and we make ourselves uncomfortable in a tent, and we call it a vacation. That's what we do. We're not memorializing anything. That's just how we do it. And I don't know how you feel about that. Um, my family, when I grew up, we did a lot of camping. I just remember one time when I was a little kid, we had a run-in with a grizzly bear in Canada. And that made me go, so why are we doing Right? Because it's funny, I go to work every day. I work hard. So that I do not have to sleep on the ground outside. That's the point. That's the point. That's all I'm saying. So, well, there's one more thing I want to say. One more thing. This is that this is that traumatic event with a grizzly bear coming out of my life, right? To me, a person in a sleeping bag to a bear looks an awful lot like a burrito. That's all I'm saying, right? Get right off of that. We don't want anybody concentrating on that too long. It'll scare you, I understand. So here's the setting. Huge festival, huge festival. Tens and and thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of people coming to Jerusalem to celebrate. All these booths springing up all over Israel. People eating and drinking and celebrating and remembering how much God has blessed them. It's a huge time. So that's important for us to understand what's going on there. Now, I want to show you three things Jesus struggled with. Now, struggled with my mean fought with kind of a thing. Not like Jesus struggled with temptation. It's like Jesus fought with these three things. He had real serious problems with. Number one, his family. Now, this is the interesting one. So let's look at that. But when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near... Jesus' brothers said to him, leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. Or even his own brothers did not believe in him. Right? So this is very interesting to see here. And I don't know if you've ever thought about this. I, maybe I think about weird things. But it, it occurs to me, I'm thinking about this. You know, Jesus did all this teaching. He's traveling. He's teaching. He's, he's, you know, we see, we see the um, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, just this incredible sermon just packed full of, and he probably did that one quite a few times, and he's teaching. We just looked at John 6 where he's teaching, and it's incredibly deep, and it's in- incredibly powerful. And the most common theme that happens every time he teaches is that no one listens. No one listens to him. Think how frustrating that must have been for him. That must have been incredibly uh, just, just kind of got to him. People never listen. He teaches, they don't listen. Some people would look, listen to him trying to find something to trip him up. Some would just come for the show. Some came because there's a crowd. Oh, let's see what the crowd's doing. Some would come and they would try to get him to be what they wanted him to be. The idea is that they would only hear what they wanted to hear, and then they would tune out the rest. And that was a lot of his followers right there. And so what happened is we begin to realize that what Jesus did so much of the time is he taught for the future. He looked ahead. He said, there's going to come a day after my death, after my resurrection, when all of this teaching, they're going to go, oh. And we see that in Scripture. We see that happening to them as they look back. So Jesus, I mean, 
I just think about how difficult that must have, be, must have been for him to continually be teaching and knowing they're not getting it, but they will someday. Teaching for the future. And we see this right here. I mean, his brothers, his own brothers, they don't believe in him. But what they're saying is kind of interesting for someone who doesn't believe in him. So let's take a look at that. See, they know he's special. They grew up with him. They know he's special. But some of the things that he says, they're just, it's just too much for them. They can't understand it. His, his, his sermon in John 6, was just, it's just too much for him. He's making these claims. He's claiming to be God. He's claiming that he's going to have to die for the sins of the whole world. These are outrageous claims. To claim to be God, to claim to be the basis of salvation for the whole world. My brother is saying that. Because they'd already, we know this, they'd already tried an intervention. In Mark chapter 3, when his family heard about this, they, they went to take charge of him. For they said, he's out of his mind. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived, standing outside. They sent for someone in. They sent someone in to call him. They went to take charge of him. That word to take charge of means to bind. It means that someone that you are, you're, in a sense, an arrest. And, it's, and Jesus, this is what's so amazing. Jesus' mother's in on this. Even Jesus' mother is going, this is a little much. We just need to talk to him. And so can you imagine Jesus is teaching? He knows what's going on. And they show up, and they send somebody in, and they're outside going, hey, Jesus, come on over here. Let's talk for a minute. Just come on over here. Just us. Let's just talk for a minute. And Jesus is like, why do you guys have handcuffs? You know, like, what? what? I'm not coming over there. No, I know what you're up to. You think of that. They forcibly tried to take him because they thought he was out of his mind. They thought he was insane. They tried to have Jesus committed. His mother was in on it. Even she did not understand. He was teaching for the future. Can I just make an observation here? Some of you have family issues. Maybe they don't support you. Maybe they don't believe in you. Jesus knows that feeling. Jesus knows what that feels like. The incredible disappointment and frustration and anger of having family members that don't understand and don't support you. Maybe you have family members who do not believe. Maybe you have kids that are wandering or grandkids that are wandering or a mom, or a dad, or a spouse who does not believe. Jesus knows that feeling. He knows how that can break your heart. He knows the feeling. Because his own family did not believe. You know, they came around, right? James became the leader of the church. James wrote the book of James. He was the brother of Jesus. We were studying the book of James a couple years ago, and somebody came up to me and said, it must have been so cool to be the brother of Jesus. And I was like, I don't know. I don't know. It's like if Mary says, kids, get in here. 
All right, which one of you punched the Goldstein boy right in the nose? Right? Oh, Jesus, you can go. I know you didn't do it. Right? Here's brother. Then here, everyone take this WWJD thing and think about it. You know, that would, what would it be like being his brother? It could be difficult at times. But we see this here, and there's hope. Because his family did come around. And the same God who brought them around can bring your loved ones around. That's the same God. So there is hope. James died for the name of Jesus. He did not recant. This in itself, these weird things pop in my head. This in itself is almost a proof for the reliability of the Gospels because I have two brothers and the odds of them starting a religion for me are about the same odds as me getting pregnant. I mean, it's just not going to happen. It's just not going to happen because they know me. They grew up with me, right? I can see my brother Steve. Yeah, yeah, sure. I saw Bob raise someone from the dead. Would you die for it? Uh, no. No, because it's not true, you know. So if you have no one, you have Jesus, and he knows, and he understands. He walks with you through whatever you're walking through because he knows how that feels. And that is a great comfort. That is a great comfort for us. And if you do have someone who walks with you through tough times, someone who believes in you, maybe it's a spouse, maybe it's families, maybe it's friends, maybe just someone, be thankful. Be thankful. Because there are people who are walking utterly alone. So what are Jesus' brothers saying? It's a very strange statement from them, right? They're saying, go on up, man. Go up there and do some miracles, and everybody's going to love you. And they don't believe in him. Well, as I said, they know he's special. And some people, I read a couple of people, they take this, this, the older brothers and what they say to him in this passage, they take it as them mocking him. And, and I mean, that might be true, but I, I don't think that's exactly what's going on here. And, I, and I, the, the reason is this. The crowd we know, Jews at that time, they're looking for an earthly Messiah, understanding the ethos of the time, the culture, and the way people think really helps us here. The crowd is looking for an earthly Messiah, a political leader, a military leader. And Jesus fits the bill perfectly, right? I mean, I've mentioned this before. If you have a military leader that can heal people that are wounded, that comes in handy in a war, right? If you have a military leader who can raise people from the dead, that comes real. You know, that's... that's that's like winter is coming in Game of Thrones kind of a thing. He, that's really, that can be such a help, right? And so they're like, Jesus is perfect to be this Messiah, this kind of Messiah who picks up a sword, helps us kill Romans, frees us, makes us become a world power. That's what they're looking for, a political leader, a military leader, a ruler, a king. And I think his brothers have, been, have caught up in that. See, they don't believe he's this spiritual Messiah who's going to save people from their sins, who's going to defeat Satan. They're aiming much lower. 
They're just looking at Romans. They just want to defeat Romans. And so if they're thinking that, this makes perfect sense, right? It makes perfect sense. If you're going to be a political leader, if you're going to be a military leader, a ruler, if you're going to be a king, where do you stake your claim? Right? Where do you stake your claim? Especially back then with no internet, no TV, no radio, no way of communicating. You do it in Jerusalem. It's the biggest city for the Jews. It's their capital. You stake your claim in Jerusalem. When should you do it? During a festival. You've got a city of about 30 to 50,000 people, approximately, they estimate. You have all these people come in from all around, which sometimes they say tops 100,000 extra people being brought in for the festival, especially the major ones like this. That's the perfect time to say, I'm king. Rally behind me. Let's go kill Romans. Let's set our nation free. Makes perfect sense if you believe that. Makes perfect sense. It's a a strikingly contemporary ad campaign, right? Where are the maximum amount of listeners that you can connect with in the most direct way with your sales pitch? That's what they're telling Jesus. That's what they're saying. And and for the brothers, like this makes perfect sense, man. This makes perfect sense. Go to the right city at the right time. Meet with the right people. Develop the right image. And their idea seems to be that this will force Jesus to take charge, to lead the insurrection that they're convinced is coming. They know he's special, but they think that his specialness is for leading a rebellion to set them free. So they try to force his hand, kind of to force a showdown. They miss. They miss the whole point that what he wants to set them free from is infinitely greater than just Romans. Sin and death is his target. Not just some people who happen to be in charge right now. And Jesus is having none of it. So he struggled with his family. The other thing is he struggles with the world. That's in verses 6 through 9 here. It says, therefore, Jesus told them, my time is not yet here. For you, any time will do. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. You go to the festival. I am not going up to this festival because my time has not yet fully come. After he had said this, he stayed in Galilee. So Jesus uses that word time, and we've talked about this a lot, but just in case you haven't heard it, you know, or maybe you just weren't paying attention, that happens sometimes. Two kinds of time in the Greek. There's chronos. Chronos is minute after minute, day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, the long continuum of time. That's one word for time in the Greek. Second word for time in the Greek is kairos. Kairos is one particular moment that is especially important. One moment where things are just right for something to happen. One moment that is full of possibility if someone acts in a certain way. And Jesus here, yeah, you guessed it, he uses kairos. He says, the moment is not yet here. The moment is not yet here. You go up. He says, you always think the moment is here. You live in the now. That's how you're living. But Jesus isn't. He shows us that all the time. He shows us with the way he teaches. He teaches with the future in mind. 
because he knows they just won't get it all right now, but they will. He's saying, I have the right time for things. For you, any time's the best time. You're thinking, you're thinking only of your own desires. And Jesus is saying here, I'm thinking of what is best for humanity. Now, when Jesus talks about the world throughout Scripture, he, there's two ideas that are in mind, and, and, and oftentimes the context helps us determine which idea is going on. It's the word cosmos, and it simply means world. It's a very generic word, right? So one meaning is it's simply the physical, material universe with all the animals and countries and nations and people and plants and everything that God created. That's the physical world. The other meaning is a system of thinking that makes the material world an end of itself. This is the other world system. So the idea is it's not worldly to enjoy the material world, but it's worldly to make the material world your end, the end in itself. And he's telling them the world, this world system, the way the world runs, it doesn't hate you. It doesn't hate you because you're thinking like the world. Why would it hate you? You're on board with it. But he says, but it, it hates me because I take a stand against it. And the world will hate me. Because worldliness really is, is uh, if we put it in our context today, it's secularism. That's from the, the Latin seculum. And, and, and it means a period of time. At, at the very heart of the word is this idea of a period of time. Maybe a few moments or maybe a lifetime. But it's a very definite period of time. It is, it is timism. Nowism. What's now? What's important right at this moment for me? And worldliness here, it's, what it means is it's the here and now. The here and now is what really matters because that's all there is. This is why we call it secular or a secular mindset because it leaves out the eternal. It's only the here and now. And he says to his brothers, you're being secular. You're being worldly. You're thinking only of the here and now. That's all that's consuming you. And he says, I don't think that way. Because what does that do? It leaves out the eternal. It just says this life, this period of time, this is all there is. The world system, when it is confronted, will oppose you. When evil is called out, it will fight back. I mean, we see this happening today. I was reading the other day an opinion piece um, in the New York Times, and, and basically the opinion writer was saying the, world ha- the, the church has to get in step with the world because the church is totally out of step, out of step with what's going on in this world. It's, the church is totally out of step with what the world thinks is good and what the world thinks is bad. And what the church needs to do is modify its beliefs so that it gets in step. This was the point the person was trying to make. Get in step with our society where it's at and where it's going. Just, just, just be like us, but just be really loving. Just push love, love, love. And that's what this person is saying, and there's a problem there. Because if, if you think that, you just don't understand what the church is. It's an ignorance of the purpose of the church. The job of the church is not to cheer market trends. The job of the church is not to follow culture. You can say you don't believe in the Bible, you don't believe in Jesus, and that's fine. But don't say the church can't teach the Bible or can't teach about Jesus. 
the Bible explains what it is to be fully human, and I believe everyone needs that. And if you believe the church can't say that, then you don't understand the purpose and the mission of the church. We have to understand what's the point, what's the purpose of the church. And you know what, this isn't just about the church. This happens in everything. You know, the Federal Trade Commission has a consumer protection arm. What that is, is that there is a body of people whose job it is, is to protect consumers, to protect consumers from fraud, to protect consumers from false advertising. Now, we can debate on whether they're doing a very good job or not. I mean, maybe sometimes pretty good, maybe sometimes not so good. But, I mean, that's up for debate. But here's the thing. If the Consumer Protection Agency is doing their job, there will be people and corporations that will be mad at them because they'll feel like you're infringing upon us. We want to say that this, you know, silver iodine powder cures cancer. Why are you telling us we can't say that? Because it doesn't. Yes, but uh, free speech, uh, you know. And so corporations and people get mad at the consumer protection arm because it pushes back against them. It reveals evil. Now, if they're not protecting consumers, they're not doing their job, and there's no point in having it. If the Consumer Protection Agency stops protecting consumers, there's no point in having a Consumer Protection Agency. If the church does its job, people will push back. If the church proclaims the word of God, if the church proclaims Jesus Christ and everything about him and his gospel, there will be people who will get upset. If no one's upset, we're not doing our job. We're just not doing our job. Because the world will push back and hate us. All right, so we have to remember that Jesus is giving them some incredible, he's giving them some, some deep teaching concerning how the world works. So Jesus is for the world and against the world, both at the same time, depending on how the, the context is. He loves the world, he loves people, but the world system, he's going he's gonna to push back on. And it will always be controversial. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, at times you will be controversial and you will receive pushback. Why? Why? Because we live. There's a, there's a Latin phrase. I read it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer used it a number of times. Subspecie eternititis. What that means is, uh, Bonhoeffer calls it to move in light, to move in time in the light of eternity. To move in this time in light of eternity. This is what Jesus is saying to his brothers. I am living subspecies eternititis. I am living in light of eternity. There is a proper time. There is a moment when it is time. And he's telling them, you're merely thinking in terms of right now and how you feel and what you want and what you think is best. And he's telling them, I live in light of eternity. The time has not fully come. And this is a key thing for us to learn. You know who are the most secular people in the whole world? The most totally self-centered, this is the moment people in the world? Children. Children, right? I want it now. 
They're the most radically secular people in the world. They totally live for now. This is the big job of being a parent, is to work through that. When our kids were little and we'd go out for Halloween, they would have all this candy in their bags, mainly because I had the cutest kids in the neighborhood, and so all the people gave them extra candy because they thought they were so cute behind their masks that they couldn't see their faces. I don't know how that worked, but they had all this tons of candy, and they said they just wanted to sit down, right? I mean, we know how this works. We were all kids at one point. You want to just sit down and just eat all that candy. And so what am I doing? I'm telling them, no, 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 this is not a Kairos moment. No, I didn't say that to my kids, but I'm saying it like, I'm saying, this is not, no, no. I say, you can have two or three, and then you don't eat anymore. Then in the morning, you can take a couple to school with you. You know, just leave them in your room. When you come back, they'll be there. And then the problem was, because the first thing they say is, mom eats our candy when we're at school. So then I just say, okay, you got to learn to hide your candy from mom and just have a few more pieces when you get home, and we're going to string this out, and some of them are going to disappear surreptitiously, you know, into the trash can or whatever. And, the, and, and they would be saying, you know, no, no. You say, no, no, you're going to only have a few pieces before you sleep because here's the deal. If you eat as many as you want, you won't sleep well. You get a tummy ache, and you will become a demon spawn terror in the morning. That's what you will become, you know. And then you have little three-year-olds going, I don't want to be a demon spawn terror, right? And they would look at me and say, I don't care. I want to eat. Because they lived in the now. They lived in the now. What are they saying? They're saying, I need this. I can't be happy without it. I am unfulfilled, right? That's us when we are preoccupied with the here and now and we lose sight of eternity. You got to think about this. Five billion years from now, I will be a conscious person and I will remember what I did today. Will I do today what matters five billion years from now? Now, that can become a huge guilt thing and I don't want to go that far, right? I don't want you to, but it is sobering for us to think. What I do today affects eternity. I have the possibility today of having a Kairos moment with another person on this earth that quite possibly could affect them for eternity. That is a sobering thought. If I remember five billion years from now what I did today, will it be worth remembering? You're at your job, and you look around, you're Bob. I work in a cubicle. How can what I do today matter five billion years from now? Here's how. You have coworkers. They will be around five billion years from now. You can do your job as unto the Lord. That will matter five billion years from now. In that job, you make money. What will you do with that money that matters five billion years from now? I know some of you are going, whew. Still in school, doesn't apply to me. Your fellow students will be around five billion years from now. How you treat them will matter. And what will you use your education for? Will it just be for the here and now and me, me, me? So ask yourself, what am I doing? What am I doing? 
So Jesus, he struggled with his family. He struggled with the world. And he struggled with religion. By this I mean, you know, these religious leaders and this, the way they have warped and turned Judaism into this oppressive uh, um, religion that they're struggling with at that time. After this, Jesus went around in Galilee. He did not want to go about in Judea because the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him. That's the very first verse of this passage. Now, here's the end part of the passage. However, after his brothers had left for the festival, he went also, not publicly, but in secret. Now, at the festival, the Jewish leaders were watching for Jesus and asking, where is he? Among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about him. Some said, he's a good man. Others replied, no, he deceives the people. But no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the leaders. Now, we know, as we're going to follow through in this passage, it's about the middle of the festival when Jesus decides to show up. He comes in the middle, and he's saying, this, now, this is the time. This is the time. And he begins to teach, and it's going to just cause a firestorm. And we're going to be looking at that next week. But the thing that struck me the most in this passage, the thing that sobered me, I think, is the last verse and the last phrase. For fear of the leaders. You know, when I say religion, I'm talking about a system of rules and regulations, do's and don'ts that the religious people teach others about how you earn favor about whoever your God might happen to be. How you earn merit with your deity. And we saw this earlier because in John 6, Jesus told them about this eternal life. This, we talked about bios, physical life, and zoe, which is this life that means something, life that has meaning. And he says, eternal zoe. And Jesus says, I got eternal zoe for you. This incredible kind of life that changes the way you live now and goes right into eternity. And they were like, what must we do to get that? See, that's religion. What do I have to do? And how does Jesus, he corrects them instantly. This isn't something you do. You believe. That's it. Because you can't do it. You can't do it. It's a matter of belief, not doing. And so that's how they're thinking. And many of the Jewish leaders have fallen into this trap with their endless interpretations of the laws. And we'll take a lot of that up next week when the attacks come and the hate that the world system has comes on Jesus. But this passage shows us something of what religion does to people. The leaders, if you remember, when Jesus healed that man by the pool, they, were, they didn't go, oh my goodness, this guy hasn't walked for 38 years. Now he walks. Dude, you're awesome, right? No, they said, hey, you can't do that on the Sabbath. That's illegal. They missed the whole point. That's what religious does. They're more concerned with their interpretation of the law than they are with actual people who God says, whom God says he loves. And so what does religion do to people? It creates fear. Fear of leaders and what they can do. That's why I tell people sometimes they go, oh, you know, you work at a church. You must be very religious. I said, no, our church isn't into religion. And they said, how do you know? I said, because fears me. I know that right now. Nobody is scared of Bob Mosley, even though this magnificent hunk of a man can be awe-inspiring. <laughs> what is, oh, Lord, forgive me. Um, nobody fears me. And, and, and that's, I want that. I want that. 
people call me out at different times. People say, hey, what about, hey, you say, hey, but, and I'm happy with that because I'm not perfect. Because if I was perfect, you would fear me because I'd be a terrible person to be. I guess I wouldn't be perfect then. That's a circle. I don't know how that goes. Religion creates fear. It causes people to be afraid, especially of the leaders and what they can do. On a fairly regular basis, one of the things I say here sometimes after we're done singing is, welcome to First Church. This is a safe place. This is a safe place. Because I know a lot of people come here riddled with fear and anxiety. I know sometimes people have shared with me. They come here and they're like, I don't know how I'm going to be treated. I don't know what people are going to say about me. I don't know what people are going to think about the way I look. I don't know what people are going to think about some of the things I say or I believe. And I say, you're welcome here because this is a safe place. You're welcome here regardless. Whether you believe in Jesus or not, you are welcome here. Whether you've been naughty or nice, you're welcome here. Whether you agree with me or you disagree with me, you're welcome here. I, just a side note, if you disagree with me, man, let's talk. I would love to get together for coffee. Not for me to be condescending or be holier than thou, simply to have a mutual, I mean, literally, a mutual pursuit of the truth. For both of us, a pursuit of the truth. I'd be happy to sit down and talk. If you've been mistreated, you're safe here. Regardless of your background, you're safe here. If you say, oh, Bob, you don't know. You don't know what I've done. Come talk. We'll talk. But it doesn't matter. You are safe here. This is not a place where you'll be judged and shamed. Now, we will speak the truth. We can't get around that. Otherwise, we're not being the church. But it will be done in love, not in hate. We have no right to hate as, as Christians. We have no right to hate. In 1 John, a book written by the same guy that the book we're studying, he says, those who hate do not know the Father. They don't know him. Hate is not a Christian value. The fear of leaders tells us everything we need to know about their religion. That God's word was misused to people's own ends, misused to keep people down. And yet also in 1 John, he says, perfect love, the love of God casts out fear. This is one of the things I love about Jesus. It's because there's, it says all these whisperings are going on, right? All this undercurrent is going on. Everybody's like, dude, if Jesus shows up, it's going to get crazy, you know? It's going to be like in high school. You just hear people yelling, fight, 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 and everybody rushes to the, to the cafeteria and stands on tables to be able to watch and take pictures, right? They're all anticipating that. So what does Jesus do? He says, here I come. <laughs> here I come. Because right now is the Kairos moment. It's the perfect time. You know, he just wades in. What a man, what a savior. So his family, his family misunderstood him totally. The world hated him. And religious leaders wanted to kill him. What a great way to start a religion, right? What a great way to start a belief system. 
and he did, and it endures to this day. And this morning, just like we're doing right here, millions and millions of people all over the world are doing this because of Jesus, because of what he's done, because of changed lives, because of changed hearts. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. Lord, I, I, just pray, I pray right now for every person here, myself included, help us to see, help us to see that what we do is so important and to live our lives in light of eternity. And Father, there may be others who are just kind of searching or looking or not sure, and I pray that you would illuminate their hearts to see what Jesus has done for us. We see him living the life we couldn't live, dying the death we deserved, and being raised from the dead to prove his victory over death. Lord, as we accept him as our Savior, we become a part of that. And we are given an inheritance that Jesus earned for us. It is all about us simply believing and not doing. Help us to see that, Lord. And when we do, it changes us. It changes the way we live. So, God, we dedicate this time to you and to your glory. As we leave this place, help us to see people all around us as people your son has died for. Help us to see that they are people who will be alive in eternity, and we can touch them right here and right now. Help us to love that, to be excited about it. In Jesus' name, amen.